I'm so excited to have Caleb Kottenbach with us this weekend here at The Crossing. Caleb and I have been friends for over 10 years. He is an amazing leader and just a great partner in ministry. He's the senior pastor of Discovery Christian Church in Simi Valley, California. Caleb has an amazing story of God's grace working in his life. It is one of the most unique stories of how God just enters into where we are at our place and that just changes us and transforms us. I'm so excited for you to hear his story. He's come out with a brand new book called Messy Grace. This is where we stole our title from for our series a few weeks ago from his book. And this is one of the greatest books I've read on this topic and we have them here for sale today. So when Caleb comes out, would you give him a huge rock star crossing welcome? Thank you so much. How are we doing, Crossing? We doing good? Yeah? Hey, I'm so thrilled to be with you here today. I love your pastor. He's a great dude. I love Lee as much as you can love Lee. And, uh, you know, you have some great people here. So thank you so much. And if you're here for the first time, if somebody bribed you to get you here and you saw the topic, you're like, oh, great. Glad I'm here for this. Whatever brought you here, we're glad. And I hope that you know that this is a church that you can come to. And this is a church that journeys with you. And we don't expect you to be perfect. We expect you to be messed up like the rest of us. Because, you know, that, that's what, you know, God sees us. And he loves us in spite of whoever we are. So I want to tell you a little bit about myself. Because I know a lot about you. But you don't know a lot about me. I love movies. And I was blessed enough to be able to marry a woman and, who loved movies. And so when we were first married, when we had a life before children, we went to go see movie after movie after movie. But when we tried to get pregnant, no matter what we did, we could not get pregnant. And we went through this depression. We handled our depression in different ways. You know, I threw myself into my work and my wife was much more destructive and she started watching Hugh Grant movies over and over again. And, um, you know, romantic chick flicks and ain't nobody got time for that. I mean, nobody likes Twilight. So, you know, I, I finally said, we're going to get you pregnant one way or another. And we went to a fertility clinic and we got pregnant with our son, Joel, who is now nine on our first try. And our daughter, Rachel, on our second try, she's now seven. I love them equally, but I got to tell you about Joel. The day that we found out we were pregnant, I did things that I had never done before. I went and I trolled Babies Are Us for like three or four hours by myself. I was the creepy single guy that was there. You know, I was so excited to be a dad. We would go over to friends' houses and, you know, we, we would be invited for dinner. And we lost friends because we monopolized conversations and talked about our pregnancy. And we didn't care. We got new friends friends. We were pregnant, right? You can always get new friends. And I knew what to expect because I had seen the movies. I knew that when my son came out, he would be this clean, pristine, beautiful child would grab my finger, epic John Williams underscore with the light from heaven. And his first words would be perfectly pronounced, father, I love you. I knew that that was what was going to happen. That is not what happened. We got to the hospital and everything was great until the pain hit my wife. And then she became somebody I had not exchanged vows with at that point. <laughs> I tried to comfort her. I, I put my hand on her shoulder. She said, don't you touch me right now. And I said, okay, Linda Blair, Emily Rose, whoever you are, I'm going to go <laughs> over here. And the doctor came in and gave her drugs and she went back to loving God and others at that point. And everything was going great until it was time for my son to come into the world. And the doctor comes in, spreads a big plastic mat all over the floor and puts on what looks like body armor and a welding mask and everybody else is suiting up. And I go up to the doctor. I said, is something getting ready to explode? Because I'm not covered. And so the doctor gets in the football position to catch my son as he comes into the world. And when my son came out, I looked at him. My expression went from this to... It's like, 
whoa. I mean, I saw things that day I didn't even know existed. He came out, and he was a color that Crayola had not invented a crayon for. His head was rectangular like Dan Aykroyd from Saturday Night Live. I mean, he, he, he was strange looking. He made the most annoying noise in the world. My wife is in pain. There's controlled chaos. Somehow my mother-in-law snuck through in there. That, like, that's not creepy. And so I, they took my son. They wrapped him in a blanket. They gave him to me. And I really have no filter. So I look at my son and I said, he looks like a turtle. <laughs> and when my daughter was born, she looked like this big, red, juicy ladybug. And if you had been there... If you had been there, you would have said, man, Caleb, that was really messy. And you, you probably would have been right. But in that moment, none of the mess mattered because I looked through the mess and I saw my child there for the first time. And I just love my child. I don't know where it came from. I just love my child. And I want, I want to let you know that that's the way that God feels about you. Even if you don't believe in God, even if you're not used to going to church or you had a bad church experience and, and somebody dragged you here and you decided to come, let me just tell you, that's how God feels about you. You see, here's what the world does. The world likes to define us by our messiness, place us in categories, and slap labels on us. The world likes to say, hey, you've got issues. You're an addict. You're an alcoholic. You're prideful. You have financial issues. You've got marriage issues. You've got this. You've got that. That's what society does. But here's what God does. God peels off the labels. God takes us out of the categories. He looks past our mess, and he says, that's my child. And I love my child. And so, today, I just have one very simple message for you. If you are used to going to church, if you're following Jesus, or you've been in church for a long time, like since God was a boy, that's how long you've been in church, right? I want to tell you something that is incredibly important for you to listen to, okay? And, and I guarantee you've heard it, but maybe you need to hear it again. And for those of you who aren't used to going to church, what I'm going to say to you, I guarantee you, it is something that you will want to hear. It's something you want to believe, but because of the actions of some of our brothers and sisters who follow Jesus, you're going to have a hard time believing it. And I'm sorry for them, but this is the truth. God loves messy people. God loves people who are broken. God loves people who don't have their lives together. As a matter of fact, we use this big, fancy theological term here at this church called repentance, where we believe that when we follow Jesus, we have to own our own junk. We have to do a 180-degree turn. We have to commit to trying to think different and live differently and follow Jesus. And that means we have to own the fact that all of us are messy, not just one person, right? And you say, well, Caleb, they're messier than I am. Well, I mean, who knows, however you define messy, but you have to understand that you're messy. The first two letters in the word messy are M-E, right? Me, messy. You're a mess, and if you don't think you're a mess, you are a big mess, trust me. So <laughs> the difficult thing is how do you love messy people? God's got a corner market on it, right? He's perfect, he's God, he's righteous, he's a cool dude. He, capital D dude. He's got a corner market on it, but how do we love the people who are difficult, messy, the people who are different from us, the people who vote differently, who look different, the people who we don't like or may not like us. How do we love these people? And so, thankfully, Jesus gives us some help. So what I want you to do today is I want you to turn to the fourth book of the New Testament. If you have your Bible, your mobile devices, in just a moment, we're going to have the words on the screen. Uh, if you want to open up your Crossing Church app, they might have it on there. But if you turn to John chapter 8, uh, John is the last gospel. It's the fourth book in the New Testament, last gospel. Gospel literally means good news. It is the death, burial, and resurrection. And the four gospels in the beginning of the New Testament really comprise a chronology and a collection of the events and sayings of Jesus' life when he was here for the first time on earth. 
And I love John's gospel because he was a, one of Jesus' students. So everything you read in John's gospel is either something that he saw Jesus do or heard Jesus say. And he wrote this down for us to know. So when you read this, you're reading an eyewitness account. And if Jesus came for the very first time today, I'm convinced he would have his own reality TV show. It would be Keeping Up With Jesus. Because amazing things happen to Jesus. When you read the gospels, if you're not used to reading it, listen to me. When you read the gospels, incredible things happen to Jesus that never happened to the rest of us, right? And we're going to look at one of these situations right here in John chapter 8. Beginning with verse 2, it says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? We're just going to look at the beginning of verse 6 right here because it drives me nuts. It says that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, let me set the scene for you real quick if you're not familiar. Jesus is teaching to a crowd of people, and these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're the celebrity pastors, the Bible college and seminary. They have their doctorates in, uh, in theology. They have the whole Old Testament memorized and commentaries on the Old Testament memorized, and they still live in their mother's basement. They have no life whatsoever. That's who these people are. They can't stand Jesus because Jesus is about grace, and they're about behavior modification, legalism, fundamentalism, and control. And so they find this woman caught in the act of adultery. We don't know how. Obviously, they're creepers. And they grab her. And they drag her through town, they present her to Jesus, and they quote this phrase that Moses, who is an Old Testament leader, uh, who recorded some of God's laws, actually 613 laws in the first five books of the Old Testament, they quote what he says in Deuteronomy 22, where Moses writes, and this is what he gets from God, if you catch a man and woman in the act of adultery, you can take them outside the city gates and stone them. Now, that wasn't the only option, but it was a option. And it, there's a different theological and historical context for that that we don't have time to go into. But this is what they quote to Jesus. And I read this story. I looked at it last night, by the way, and I'm like, where's the dude? You ever read this story? I'm like, where's the guy? I mean, I it checked this morning. It wasn't in there. I thought maybe they would have added it. And, and I guess what makes me so mad is that they are using this woman as much as the man who's having an affair with her was using her. They don't care about her redemption or her restoration. They're willing for her to die so they can be right. I don't care who you are. That's messed up, right? Now, Jesus' response is weird. You might say, Caleb, don't call what Jesus does weird. I didn't say it was bad. I said it was weird. Okay? Different. Here's what he does under verse 6. Look at this. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. That's awkward. <laughs> you say, no, it isn't. Oh, really? When was the last time you were in an argument with somebody? You're like, hold on. <laughs> right? It's weird. And so some people have thought maybe he was writing down verses of scripture and the dust and the dirt. Other people think that maybe he was writing down um, the sins of the religious leaders. But I found this interesting verse all the way back in the Old Testament spoken by a prophet named Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 13. I think he made clue of sin on what Jesus wrote in the dirt. Listen to this. It says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. And those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. You see, if I were a betting person, I'd be willing to bet that Jesus was writing the names of the religious leaders in the dirt, and they thought this woman was outside the hope and the, and the offer of grace because of her sin, and Jesus says, no, you are, because you have the truth, but you have no love, right? And they don't get this. 
We see that they don't get it because in verse 7 it says, when they kept on questioning him, Jesus straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Now, you don't even know, need to go to church on a regular basis to know where this comes from. That's where we get the sayings, you know, you know, ye without sin, throw the first stone or they're casting stones. But what we don't see is the brilliance of what Jesus is arguing here. Because you see, God had 613 commands in the Old Testament. And one of them was... Thou shalt not bear false witness, King James style, or else, you know, Caleb style, don't lie, you know? And as a matter of fact, he thought that that was such a big deal that he put in the top 10 commandments, right? And so, and so it, they knew if they picked up a stone, they had sin. If they threw it, they'd be guilty of lying. So they didn't want to break that. But here's the other thing. They would also be guilty of committing blasphemy. We believe at this church, like, like they did back then, that God is the only eternal, supreme, existent, sinless being in existence. And so if they picked up a stone and claimed to be sinless, they would be claiming to be God, and the very stone that they used would be thrown back at them. Now, I don't care who you are, you've got to admit Jesus has got mad skills, if he can argue like that. He's got mad skills. And I want you to notice one more thing, okay? He could have thrown a stone at the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He did not. He gave them the same grace that he's about ready to show this woman right here. I love the result of this, verse 9. You've got to love this. Look at this. It says that this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, she says, no one, sir. And we get to the end of verse 11. And if you feel comfortable highlighting, circling, underlining, this is what I want you to do because this is the key. This last part of verse 11 is going to help you learn how to love people who are messy. It's one sentence in the original language. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Then neither do I condemn you. Grace, go now and leave your life of sin, which is truth. You see, Jesus... According to John 1, 14 and 17, Jesus came full of both grace and truth. And again, he's God. He's got the corner market on it. But it's a little bit more difficult for us, right? I'm pretty sure I can divide everybody up here, even if you're not following Jesus yet. You are either on the side of grace, you know, and mercy and this kind of thing, or you're on the side of rule keeping and law and truth and that kind of thing. Because that's just how we're wired. But I want to make this argument that if we're going to love messy people, And some of you who are following Jesus, you need to listen to this. It is completely, totally immature if you take sides. If you say, I'm all about the grace or I'm all about the truth, call yourself a Christian. Don't ever call yourself a mature Christian because you're not. You're weak. You're flimsy. You're like holding a rubber band on one side if you say, I'm all about the grace, but not the truth. You know these people. We love them. They're annoying. We love them. They're the ones who say, God is love, God loves you, God loves everybody, God loves, God loves. And they, wanna, they think God is somebody who wants to eat snow cones all day and, and cotton candy. Their version of God is Buddy the Elf, right? I mean, th- we love these people. They're annoying, though. It's like, have a bad day someday, please. Then, there are the people on the true side. Every day is a bad day for them because they want people to know that they know the Bible. And you know the Bible, and we're thankful for you, but you're annoying, too. Okay, we know you know the Bible. As a matter of fact, you're so quote-unquote spiritually mature that when you say the name Jesus, you add extra syllables. It's not Jesus, it's Jesus, and you talk about the Lord like this, right? (laughs) But there's no power if you just hold a rubber band on both sides. But look where the power is. If you say, I'm about the grace and the truth, where's the power? The power is in the tension of the two. And you feel this tension. I love my friend, but God's word says this. 
This is what I did last night, but I love God. I, you know, the, my family member's doing this, but God's word says this. And we feel that tension, and it's easier to take sides. But if you live in the tension, however uncomfortable it is, if you're on the gray side, it pulls you closer to the truth. If you're on the truth side, it pulls you closer to the grace. And I know what this tension is. It's love. You see, I believe that love is the tension of grace and truth. And by the way, if you're following Jesus, it's not like you don't live in tension with what you believe already. You do. Because you believe in one God but the Trinity, like there's no tension there, right? You believe the Bible is written by God but by people. Jesus is fully God and fully human. You believe that God is in control and God, we have free will. You believe that we are to love God and love people. Shane is a good preacher, but he has too much hair. I mean, come on. <laughs> we live in this tension all the time. So why can't we live in it when it comes to loving people who are messy, people just like us, by the way? So how do we do that? Let me tell you about my story real quick. I only have a little bit of time, okay? When I was two years old, my parents divorced. Both of them were professors in Columbia, Missouri at the University of Missouri and some surrounding colleges. And after they got a divorce, when I was two years old, both of them went into same-sex relationships. And my childhood, from two all the way up through high school, I was raised in the LGBT community. And I think raised would be an understatement. While my dad was in the closet, I had suspicions, but I didn't know about him until like right around college or when I graduated or, you know, he had several different partners. My mother was in a 22-year relationship with a woman named Vera, who was a psychologist. They moved to Kansas City. They became activists. They joined the local board of directors for GLAD. They took me with them as a kid to gay bars and campouts and pride parades and activist events and house parties. And I remember this one pride parade I marched in when I was like nine or 10. At the end of it, there are all these Christians at the end holding up signs saying, God hates you. God has no room for you. And if that wasn't offensive enough, they were spraying water and urine on everybody at the same time. And I looked at my mom. I said, Mom, why are they acting like that? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians. And Christians hate gay people. Christians don't like people who are, you know, gay. And I was like, man, I never want to be part of that. And I saw that time and time again. I even remember visiting one of my mom's friends who was dying of AIDS. He was a gentleman who was dying of AIDS. He was in a same-sex relationship. His parents were Christians. His family were Christians. They didn't agree. And when we went to his hospital room a few days before he died, they were lined up against the wall like they were waiting for a firing squad to come and get them. They didn't talk to us. They didn't talk to him. They didn't want to touch him or anything. They treated him like a leper. And I looked at my mom. I said, why are they acting like that? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians. And you remember what I said. Christians hate gay people. And so I grew up hating Christians. I mean, by the time I got to high school, my worldview was out of control. My life was out of control. My hair was like down to here. I don't know what's funny. What's funny? Since then, the Lord removeth and addeth. But... <laughs> I got invited to go to this high school Bible study led by a high schooler. And so I thought, this is perfect. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pretend to be a Christian. I'm going to learn about the Bible. Then I'm going to dismantle their faith. So I put on my ninja mask, you know, rhetorical ninja mask, whatever that means. And I grabbed a Bible and I went to this evangelical conservative Christian household. And you got to understand, I had never set foot in a conservative evangelical Christian household. And when I walked in, the first thing I saw and first thing I noticed, I thought to myself, why do these people have framed pictures of sheep and lions and Bible verses and a little kid looks like a shepherd kid holding a lamb? And I looked at my friend. I said, is this part of the deal? If I turn Christian, do I have to get a sheep picture? Because I'm out. <laughs> I don't want a sheep picture. And went down and we were all reading from scripture. They were all reading from 1 Corinthians. I was in 1 Chronicles. 
they read from Paul. I read a story about somebody getting slaughtered. And they said, where are you? I said, First Chronicles. They said, oh, you're in the Old Testament. I said, so there's a new one. There's updated 2.0. I had no clue. There's even a New Testament. And so the more that I went to the study, the more I learned, learned about Jesus. Here's what I learned. That Jesus had very deep and still does have very deep theological convictions and expectations for how you and I should live our life in a way that glorifies God and gives him the fame and renown. But at the same time, he also had very deep relationships with people who were far from God. Now, I could get on board with somebody like that. And the more that I studied, I came to this conclusion, which I still hold today. Okay, here it is. That God designed sexual intimacy for the expression in marriage between one man and one woman, and anything outside of that is outside of God's design. But at the same time, I also came to this conclusion, which I still hold today, that our biblical beliefs should never be a basis to devalue another human being. Okay? Never. That should never happen. And then I felt like God was calling me to be a pastor. So you got to imagine how nervous I was. I had to go. Listen, I had to go. Come out as a teenage Christian to my three gay parents. <laughs> and I tell them that I changed my view on sexuality and that I wanted to be a pastor. And they kicked me out. Because they categorized and labeled me right then. And they automatically associated me with the extremists. Listen, I don't care what community you're dealing with. Don't ever categorize everybody by the extremists in, in any community. Not even the Christian ones. And, and yet, at the same time, it was hard. And I spent the night at friends' houses. But I, as more that I learned about Jesus, the more margin I had to love people who were different from me and forgive the unforgivable. And so I went to Bible college. Um, same one that Shane went to. He went in the 1920s. I went, you know, a, a while ago. <laughs> I love Shane. He's a good friend. He's a good guy. He's, he's preaching my church soon, so he'll get me back. Don't worry. So I preached at all these little churches when I was out there, and one of the churches I preached at, I preached there for 18 months. We had 25 people in the church, 50 people in the town. I mean, we were the largest church per capita in the world. Half our town was owned for Christ. After 18 months, I was finally able to convince my mom to come to church with me, and we had a huge spike in attendance from 25 to 26. It was a huge one for the books. And the, next, and the next Sunday, she didn't come back, but when I got there, two elders were waiting for me. They took me to the back room, and they said, Caleb, if you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. We don't like those people. And I said, well, I don't like you, and I quit on that day. And I walked out, and as I was driving back to my Bible college, I said, Lord, if you ever give me the chance to lead a church, here's what I want. I want a church filled with broken people, filled with people who are homeless, who are in gangs, who are cutting, who are using, who are having abortions, who are struggling with their sexuality or not struggling with their sexuality, people who think they have it all together. That's what I want. I want a church filled with messy people because that's what the church is. The church is really a mosaic of broken lives that God has united together to glorify himself. That's what the church is. Listen to me on this, okay? That's what Jesus died for, rose for, bled for, and is coming back for. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross for a little members-only country club masquerading as a Pharisee factory. That's not what he died on the cross for. Jesus did not die on the cross for a Pharisee factory. He died on the cross for broken people because when you're broken, God can put you back together better than you ever have been before. And so when I graduated from Bible college, I got out of southern Missouri if you're not familiar with that, one of the reasons why I left as soon as I could is because all the family trees go straight up. They don't branch out whatsoever. It's just one straight line. And so I went to Los Angeles, and I was on staff at a very large church there for 11 years. It's a sister church of this church called Shepherd Church. 
And just amazing things happened. Like one of them, I got married. I never thought that would happen. As a matter of fact, I got married to this beautiful, tall, tan-toned, thin, muy caliente Latina named Amy. (laughs) And in her wildest dreams, she had no clue that one day her knight in shining armor would look like a cross between Gru and Dr. Evil. She had no clue whatsoever. (laughs) Trust me, this is what she wakes up to every morning. She's a lucky lady, okay? It takes effort to look like this. And so after 10 years there in 2010, I wanted to preach. So we moved to Dallas, Texas to go preach at a church. And in the summer of 2013, after three and a half years of purgatory in Texas, we left Texas and we went back to Southern California where I'm pastoring Discovery Church right now, a phenomenal church. But when we went to Dallas, Texas, even more amazing things happened. Both my parents moved there separately of one another. My, my mother's partner had died without Christ years earlier, and my mom was going through a depression. And so I had never had my parents live within a two-mile radius of, or five-mile radius or anything of where I lived. I didn't know if the walls would bleed, a pig would fly, a lady would be outside singing. I had no clue what would happen. But then they said, can we start going to your church? And I said, you can go to my church. But you know what I believe? They said, Yeah. And so they went, and people were nicer to them than I was, which was annoying. And then two weeks before we left in the summer of 2013 to go to Discovery Church, both my parents, separate of one another, gave their lives to the Lord, both of them. And I just, you know, I think about it. And, and, it's, and it's messy. It doesn't make sense. But it's not my job to try to figure it out. So based, I mean, I, I asked my parents, I said, what did it? What was it that, that actually helped you? to come to Christ, and I was expecting a, a big theological, philosophical, or apologetics argument, which apologetics means defense of the faith. It's when you give reasons to believe in Christianity, but um, they told me some other things, and I, I kind of want to give these things to you as we close out here, and they're also based off of what we looked at in John 8, okay? So you can write these down. You can take pictures if you want to. Whatever it looks like, however it's helpful to you, please do that, okay? Here's the first one. Be known for what you're for, not against. I don't think I need to say much about this one because I think you have seen how we as Christians in America are not only used to nominal Christianity, we can go to church whenever we want, or we can skip church whenever we want, but at the same time, we are really good at letting people know what we're against. And yet Jesus didn't do that with this woman, right? He was against the sin in her life, but at the same time, he said, I'm for you. I'm for your restoration. I'm for your redemption. Be known for what you're for, not against. Here's the second one. A theological conviction should never be a catalyst to treat someone less. These people in John 8, the religious leaders, were right in calling what this woman did a sin. They were wrong in their execution. You can be right in your theology and wrong in how you treat people. And if you allow your theology to give you permission to mistreat or ignore another person, you are not following Jesus the way you should. Listen to me on that. That's so serious. Okay? A theological conviction must never be a catalyst to treat someone less. As a matter of fact, you know what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 46? He says, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Right? Anybody can do that. And then the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 18, he says, as much as it depends on you, if possible, live at peace with everyone. And I don't know if we do such a good job at living at peace with everyone or reflecting the kindness that Paul and Jesus talk about. Okay? Here's the third one. Embrace the difference between acceptance and approval. 
Embrace the difference between acceptance and approval. I believe that there's almost a biblical mandate that we should accept anyone because when you accept somebody, you are loving them for who they are, where they are in life, knowing that you can't fix them and you love them and you have a relationship with them. But that does not mean that you approve of every person's relationship choice or choice that they make in their life, right? Anybody should be able to come to church here. Doesn't matter what kind of car you drive, doesn't matter how much you have in the bank account or don't, doesn't matter where you live, it doesn't matter what you did last night or what you didn't do last night, it might matter if you root for the Oakland Raiders. Other than that, (laughs) because I'm a Chiefs fan, other than that, I was expecting applause. (laughs) We have 40 saved people here. Other than that, anybody should be able to come to church here right? Because there's a big difference between acceptance and approval. Now listen to me on this next one, okay? Realize that the issue is identity, not sexuality. The issue is identity, not sexuality. The Pharisees and the religious leaders were trying to define this woman by the sexuality and the sexual sin in her life, but Jesus refused, and he saw the potential of of what she could be in God and of who God has created her to be, And we need to do the same thing. I remember one time I had this conversation with my mom is before her partner died, before she was a Christian. She said, well, Caleb, you know that, you know, basically uh, Vera and I haven't been sexually intimate for like seven years now. You know, first of all, gross. Nobody wants to hear that from your mother. Okay, I don't care who your mother's married to. A stork brought me. That never happened between my mom and dad, okay? But when she said that, I was like, okay, so you're not a lesbian anymore. She said, well, sure I am. Those are my people. Those are where I have relationships. I have acceptance. I'm part of a cause and a movement. And I said, you just described the church. She said, no, I didn't. Why would I go somewhere that would make me feel less about myself or would shame me? And it really dawned on me that for her, the smallest way of how she identified as LGBT was through who she wanted to be intimate with. The bigger part was the relationship and how she was treated and how she was loved. And I thought to myself, we can do that. Because what most Christians do when, they're, you know, when they meet somebody who you know, is LGBT or identifies that, style, you know, that way in some way, here's what they do. They end up throwing like Leviticus 18 and Genesis 19 and Romans 1 and we'll even throw in some like... Uh, Ephesians 5. And so we throw that at somebody without getting to know that person. I believe all these scriptures are inspired and true. Okay, but you are tackling the smallest part. Why would you not get to know somebody? Why would you treat them like a project? People are not projects. They are people. Why would you not get to know their dreams and their heart and their love? Why would you not make a friend? Okay, why would you not do that? Why would you just berate them with verses? That's not kind. And as a matter of fact, it's Paul in Romans 2, 4 that says it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. How much more should our kindness lead others to God? And and here's the deal. You say, Caleb, you don't think we should talk about that? Well, sure. Listen, there always comes a point in any relationship that I have with somebody, if I see something, I need to have a conversation with them or they need to have one with me about holy living and the importance of it. But conversations on holy living, especially difficult ones, are best had in the context of trust and relationship and love. And I believe that as we help people to identify with Jesus, we can have those conversations. Here's the very last thing I want to say to you, okay? God never called you to change a person's sexual orientation. He called you to lead people to Jesus. Now, listen to me when I say that. I'm not saying that people don't make relationship choices that God does not approve of. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's never been your job to change or fix somebody. Because you can fix somebody like yourself for the worse, 
How many of you are really good at fixing yourself and you just spiral down when you take God's hands off the steering wheel? You grab on, right? But here's what I've learned about Jesus in my short years of being Christian. He's an expert at life change. He's an expert at knowing our hearts. He knows our upbringing, how, what we believe, our chemical basis. He knows the state of our mind. He knows who we are. He knows what we believe. He knows our pain, our hopes, our joys. He knows everything. And he is so much better at life change. And it's never been, it's never been my job to change somebody or to get them ready before I bring them to church or become their friend. It has always been my job to love people well, right? It has always been my job. You see, my parents right now, they believe in Jesus you know, I believe they're saved. They don't believe everything I do. They're not in same-sex relationship. They're still same-sex attracted. You know, they, I mean, we got mom and dad and son issues, but how does all that go together? I don't know. God never called me to solve the puzzle. God called me to preach love and truth because God loves messy people. Love is the tension of grace and truth. You should love messy people, right? Because God loves you. He loved you when you were really messy. He still loves you because you're messy. Let's do the same. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. And I just want to lift up a prayer for those in here who may not be following you yet. I hope that today can be the first step that they take towards a relationship with you, knowing that you are not against them, you are for them. And for those of us who need to be reminded of this important truth, Father, may we be reminded that you are not against anyone, but you are for everyone. And that's why you sent your son. And help us to treat people in that same kindness. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Love you guys. Amen.